0: Welcome to Inspire Churches podcast. We're excited you're listening. Our hope is to inspire you to grow in God's word, to grow more in love with Christ, and to go be a light wherever you are. To find more teachings or donate to the ministry, visit us at inspirechurches.com.
1: Good morning, Inspire Church family. Thank you so much for joining us for another church at home. My name is Philip. I am the lead pastor of Inspire Church. I want to take a moment to pause before we get into the message today for something that's hit home for many of us. It's hit us deeply at Inspired Church. In fact, we have about 40% of our membership that is Asian-American, stemming from Filipino, Chinese, Korean, uh, all kinds of diversity of Asian and Inspired Church. And I want to pause for a moment and let you know that I love you. I'm with you. I'm praying for you in this time. Uh, What has happened with those brutally gunned down in Atlanta, but actually what has been happening beyond that uh, are loving elders, grandparents, grandmothers, and fathers, some being murdered, beat. Now the target is Asian women. I understand the fear, the frustration, the pain that you must feel, and maybe even feeling like amongst all of the minorities, you guys are probably the most quiet, hidden, silent. I want to let you know we see you. We love you. We're praying for you. Inspired Church exists because of you. And my heart goes out to all of you who are filling this tension and this fear in this time. And so I want to pause before we get into this sermon. I want to say a prayer uh, for all of you and all of us. And uh, again, I want to continue despite the political rhetoric to go outside and say that any taking of any human life is diabolical but in particular right now we're condemning any form of racism any form of white supremacy any form of cross racism between cultures it is diabolical it's evil it's demonic it's anti-christ and we stand specifically with our Asian brothers and sisters we stand with you today. We hear you. We love you. We support you. If you need anything, I know the staff, myself, my wife, we're here for you to pray with you. So let me begin with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I come before you right now in the name of Jesus. Lord, I come and I submit to you all of the emotions, the fears. The anger, the exhaustion, the uh, 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 peace that has been robbed. And Lord, we lay at your feet. We cry, Lord, have mercy. Lord, all of the families that have been affected, the names of those lives that have been taken. God, we lay it at your feet. This world is broken. This world is contaminated by pride and uh, tribalism. This world is in need of a savior. But Lord, right now I pray for specifically all of my Asian brothers and sisters that feel just unheard. God, I pray that you would meet them in their place and in their space right now. I pray that you would empower them with boldness to stand up for biblical justice in our communities, Lord, to speak out and speak against. And Lord, we come alongside of them, we speak up with them and for them. And Lord, I just declare the blood of Jesus that you would be with those that are afraid. And that ultimately, God, even in the most broken, ugly situations, that you would get the glory and that the church would rise up and be a place of refuge and rest to those who are hurt and afraid. So, Lord, I just pray that you would comfort those in this time that need your comfort by your Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. There is a link between God's sovereignty and man's humility. You see, in order to save... God must first bring us low, break us down, and empty us out. Why? Because our hearts are full of pride. And a heart full of pride cannot, will not acknowledge the greatness of God. Pastor Mark Bates frames this well. Believe it or not, in the kingdom of God, One of the most gracious things that God can do for you and I is humiliate us. And one of the most frightening things that God can do for you and I is allow us to succeed and believe that we did it in our own strength. You see, I'd rather lose and discover God. I'd rather fail and in my failure know God more than win and be so full of myself that there's no room to honor God for his glory. Proverbs sixteen nineteen says, It is better to be lowly in spirit with the poor than to divide the spoil with the proud. First Peter 1 5 tells us for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Psalm 138 6 says, for though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly, but the haughty he knows from afar. Now, if you're a student of scripture and you enjoy biblical hermeneutics, there's a principle that is called the principle of illustrative mention. Now, this principle teaches that every major truth in Scripture has a corresponding story of illustration in Scripture. You see, Daniel chapter four is one of those illustrations of a man's pride and humility and the sovereignty of God. I'm entitling this message, The Blessing of Humiliation.
0: Daniel 4, King Nebuchadnezzar sent this message to the people of every race and nation and language throughout the world. Peace and prosperity to you. I want you all to know about the miraculous signs and wonders the most high God has performed for me. How great are his signs, how powerful his wonders His kingdom will last forever, his rule through all generations. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was living in my palace in comfort and prosperity. But one night, I had a dream that frightened me. I saw visions that terrified me as I lay in my bed. So I issued an order calling in all the wise men of Babylon so they could tell me what my dream meant. When all the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and fortune tellers came in, I told them the dream, but they could not tell me what it meant. At last, Daniel came in before me, and I told him the dream. His name was Belteshazzar, after my God, and the spirit of the holy gods is in him. I said to him, Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you and that no mystery is too great for you to solve now tell me what my dream means while I was lying in my bed this is what I dreamt I saw a large tree in the middle of the earth the tree grew very tall and strong reaching high into the heavens for all the world to see It had fresh green leaves and it was loaded with fruit for all to eat. Wild animals lived inside its shade and birds nested in its branches. All the world was fed from this tree. Then as I lay there dreaming, I saw a messenger, a holy one coming down from heaven. The messenger shouted, cut down the tree and lop off its branches. Shake off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Chase the wild animals from its shade and the birds from its branches, but leave the stump and the roots in the ground, bound with a band of iron and bronze and surrounded by tender grass. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven and let him live with the wild animals among the plants of the field. For seven periods of time, let him have the mind of a wild animal instead of the mind of a human. For this has been decreed by the messengers. It is commanded by the holy ones so that everyone may know that the most high rules over the kingdoms of the world. He gives them to anyone he chooses, even to the lowest of people. Belteshazzar, that was the dream that I, King Nebuchadnezzar, had. Now tell me what it means, for none of the wise men of my kingdom can do so. But you can tell me because the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Upon hearing this, Daniel, also known as Belteshazzar, was overcome for a time, frightened by the meaning of the dream. Then the king said to him, Belteshazzar, Don't be alarmed by the dream and what it means. Belteshazzar replied, I wish the events foreshadowed in this dream would happen to your enemies, my lord, not to you. The tree you saw was growing very tall and strong, reaching high into the heavens for all the world to see. It had fresh green leaves and was loaded with fruit for all to eat. Wild animals lived in its shade and birds nested in its branches. That tree, your majesty, is you. For you have grown strong and great. Your greatness reaches up to the heaven and your rule to the ends of the earth. Then you saw a messenger, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, cut down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump and the roots in the ground, bound with a bond of iron and bronze and surrounded by tender grass. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven. Let him live with the animals of the field for seven periods of time. This is what the dream means, your majesty, and what the most high has declared will happen to my Lord, the King. You will be driven from human society and you will live in the fields with the wild animals. You will eat grass like a cow and you will be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven periods of time will pass while you live this way until you learn that the Most High rules over the kingdoms of the world and gives them to anyone he chooses. But the stump and the roots of the tree were left in the ground. This means you will receive your kingdom back again when you have learned that heaven rules. King nebuchadnezzar please accept my advice stop sinning and do what is right break your wicked past and be merciful to the poor perhaps then you will continue to prosper but all these things did happen to king nebuchadnezzar 12 months later he was taking a walk on the flat roof of the royal palace in babylon he looked out across the city he said look at this great city of babylon my own mighty power, I have built this beautiful city as my royal residence to display my majestic splendor. While these words were still in his mouth, a voice called down from heaven, "O oh, King Nebuchadnezzar, this message is for you. You are no longer ruler of this kingdom. You will be driven from, ki- from human society. You will live in the fields with the wild animals and you will eat grass like a cow. Seven periods of time will pass while you live this way until you learn that the most high rules over the kingdoms of the world and gives them to anyone he chooses. That same hour, the judgment was fulfilled and Nebuchadnezzar was driven from human society. He ate grass like a cow and he was drenched with the dew of heaven. He lived this way until his hair was long as eagle feathers and his nails were like bird's claws. After this time had passed, I, Nebuchadnezzar, looked up to heaven. My sanity returned and I praised God. And I praised and worshiped the Most High and honored the one who lives forever. His rule is everlasting and his kingdom is eternal. All the people of the earth are nothing compared to him. He does as he pleases among the angels of heaven and among the people of the earth. No one can stop him or say to him, what do you mean by doing these things? When my sanity returned to me, so did my honor and glory and kingdom. My advisors and nobles sought me out and I was restored as head of my kingdom with even greater honor than before. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and glorify and honor the King of heaven. All his acts are just and true, and he is able to humble the proud.
1: I want to take a moment to thank my beautiful wife Jamila for reading Daniel chapter four so eloquently and so graciously, uh, what powerful, moving story that we just heard. In fact, Daniel chapter 4 is literally the testimony of Nebuchadnezzar's conversion in his own words. It's like he wrote out a memo, a, a divine edict that would ultimately become The Holy Scripture become a part of the book of Daniel. He wrote this inspired edict, and it was sent throughout the empire detailing the king's pride, the king's humiliation, and the sovereignty of God. Now, like chapter 2, chapter 4 begins with a disturbing dream. And the Babylonian wise men can't interpret this dream. But of course, Daniel to the rescue, he is interpreting Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Now this time, it's not a giant statue, but Nebuchadnezzar sees a great tree and he hears a divine proclamation. I want to talk to you about the king's pride. Daniel Tells the king, This great tree that you have seen in your dream represents you and your kingdom. This tree and your kingdom is strong, fruitful, and majestic, providing food for all shade for all and shelter for all it symbolizes the extensive greatness of Nebuchadnezzar and his kingdom now I want to break that greatness down for you momentarily so that you can be in awe of all that King Nebuchadnezzar was able to accomplish You see, Nebuchadnezzar, without a doubt, in this moment, was the most powerful man on the planet. After conquering all of his enemies, he was able to rest in firm control of the entire known world. What power for one man to have. Not only did he possess the power to conquer, but he possessed the wisdom and intellect to administrate and rule well. If you think about it, not only did he conquer the known world, but he was able to gather different peoples, religions, cultures, languages, practices, and unite them in peace under one Babylonian empire. He was all-powerful, he was wise, and he was also creative. You see, his capital city, Babylon, is one of the most majestic cities that the world had ever seen. You see, the city boasts a 250-foot tall tower a skyscraper before there were skyscrapers uh, uh, there were giant statues of gold uh, at every part seen throughout the city and and there was a, a wall so tall and so wide and so strong that chariots could ride on top of this wall to and fro in fact if you have time this week google the hanging gardens of babylon one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, all created under Nebuchadnezzar's reign. Think about it. All powerful, wise and creative. Nebuchadnezzar was at the prime of his kingdom and the pinnacle of his pride. I want to say this, one of the most Frightening things God could do to King Nebuchadnezzar was to allow him to continue to succeed and believe that he did all of this in his own strength. Puritan Richard Mayo says this about the sin of pride it is a big bellied sin. Most of the sins that are in the world are the offspring and issue of pride. He goes on to a list, 11 sins pride gives birth to. Number one, covetousness. Because you believe that you deserve something more than others. Number two, ungodly Ambition, because you believe that you are the most qualified and the idea of someone else being preferred over you is an insult to your perceived worth. Number three, boasting, because everyone should know who you are and what you've accomplished. Number four, contention, because in picking fights, you feel a sense of superiority. Number five unthankfulness because you deserve and earned everything you get the glory and give no thanks to anyone else. Number six, selfishness because you deserve it and nobody else does. Number seven, self-deceit because it's easier to believe you are something when in fact you are not. Number eight, judgmental attitudes because you believe the errors of others are more serious than your own. Number nine, gossip because you look so much better when telling others how awful someone else is. Mayo says this, the proud endeavor to build their own praise Upon the ruin of others' reputations. That's powerful. I want to say that again. The proud endeavor to build their own praise upon the ruin of others' reputation. Number 10, complaining. Because God should have consulted you first before he orchestrated your day or orchestrated your life. And finally, number 11, hypocrisy, because you must hide the truth of your own failures in order to avoid shame and accumulate praise. Pride is a big bellied sin that gives birth to other sins. And I'm going to be honest, if you didn't find yourself on the list, it's because you're arrogant and full of pride. All of us at some level wrestle with pride. You see, pride tries to deny God of His sovereignty, pride tries to rob God of His glory, and pride will try to create an illusion of control. This is why, in the kingdom of God, one of the most gracious things God can do for us is humiliate us, and one of the most frightening things that God can do for us is allow us to succeed. And believe all of this is because of me. From the king's pride to the king's humility. Nebuchadnezzar in his dream goes from seeing a great tree to hearing a divine proclamation. And this divine proclamation is made in two parts. There's one part figurative, symbolic. And then there's one part that is literal. Let's Tackle the figurative part first. Regarding that great tree, the messenger declares, chop it down, lop it, strip it, scatter, but leave behind its stump. I want to go slowly here. The messenger says, chop it, lop it, strip it. Scatter it, but leave behind its stump. I love this. Look closely because in this humiliation, you can see grace. God is saying, Nebuchadnezzar, I'm going to strip you. I'm going to cut you down, but I'm not going to destroy you. I determined to leave a stump. Because after you've been humbled, you're going to come back transformed. After you've been humbled, you're going to come back a new man. And so even though I am going to chop you down, I will leave the stump. Because I have plans for you. Isn't that the testimony of anyone who's ever given themselves fully and completely and wholly to God? I mean, God removes things, doesn't he? God cuts things. He strips things away. For some of us, it was battling and enduring through sickness and suffering. For others, it was jail or a heartbreak. Uh, For some, it was the bottom of the bottle or the end of the rope. But there is a blessing in humiliation because even though it, Hurt like hell, it caused you to seek heaven. There is a blessing in humiliation. The divine proclamation goes from being figurative to literal. When the messenger includes an odd prediction... We're told that Nebuchadnezzar will go out of his mind and literally live like a beast. He'll leave his kingdom. He'll be out in the fields. The dew of heaven will rain down upon him. He will be eating the grass, making animal noises. He will literally live like a beast. Now, before you think that this is crazy or this is some wild biblical story, I want you to know that this is actually a clinically, uh, it's actually called clinical lycanthropy or boanthropy. What is that? It is a verified mental condition of people throughout history who have suffered with the delusion that they have become a wild animal. Now again, you might think that this is magical or tall tale, but psychology proves that this is clinical. And also, some of y'all think that this is wild, but meanwhile, you're at Jamba Juice ordering wheatgrass (laughs) in your drink but there are verified cases throughout history of men and women like Nebuchadnezzar losing their mind. And at this point, Daniel tells the king, look, I wish that this interpretation wasn't for you. In fact, I wish it was for your enemies. He, he felt bad, but nonetheless, he communicated the word of the Lord to King Nebuchadnezzar. Now, there's so much more we can unpack here, but I want to fast forward to 12 months later. The Bible tells us one year after Daniel makes this interpretation, Nebuchadnezzar will find himself outside of his kingdom, hair like eagle's feathers, nails like bird claws, living as though he were a beast, just as Daniel had said. C.S. Lewis writes, As long as you are proud, you cannot know God. A proud man is always looking down on things and people. And, of course, as long as you are looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. As long as you're looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. But... The blessing of King Nebuchadnezzar's humiliation is demonstrated to us when we read in verse 34 I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven. I was like a beast. Eating and thinking and living with animals, but I lifted my eyes to heaven. I looked up. And in that moment, the scripture tells us that reason returned to him and he began to praise God because in his humility, he got a revelation of God's sovereignty. I'm going to say that again. In his humility, he got a revelation of God's sovereignty. I want to spend our final moments together highlighting six lessons from Nebuchadnezzar's testimony about the sovereignty of God. Six lessons from Nebuchadnezzar's testimony about the sovereignty of God. Lesson number one, God's sovereignty, according to verse three, is his dominion. His dominion. In other words, God dominates. He overrules, overrides, and supersedes all other authorities. Simply put. God is in charge. God is in control. As a result of this control in God's sovereignty, I want you to know nothing happens by accident, right? There are no coincidences. Everything that occurs has attached to it an infinitely wise purpose, even if we don't understand or agree. God's sovereignty is his dominion. Number two, God's sovereignty in verse three is everlasting and enduring in nature, is everlasting and enduring in nature. You see, God isn't just in total control, but he's always been in control and he will always be in total control while presidents, prime ministers, and dictators have their terms and expiration dates and even death. God sits on the throne reigning indefinitely over the heavens and the earth. I want to stop here for a discipleship moment. God's Everlasting endurance and God's dominion should comfort us as Christians in these times. In fact, with those two elements in mind regarding God's sovereignty, I don't get why some Christians still engage in such political panic. If you're feeling any type of political angst, there's a certain amount of that angst that I understand, but I want you to have rest underneath the Angst, understanding that God is in total control. So before you go too deep, before you throw and go all in and you get your emotions all tied into your political preferences, I have to tell you, God puts them there and God will outlast them all. Let me say that again. God puts them there. Yes, even the guy that you didn't want there, God Put them there, and guess what? God will outlast him and them all. Number three, in verse 35, God does, ready, whatever he wants. (laughs) That's it. That's the quote. That's the text. That's the tweet. God does whatever he wants. Enough said. Number four, he doesn't just do whatever he wants, but watch, he doesn't heed your advice. (laughs) He doesn't need your advice. He doesn't need your counsel. He doesn't need your wisdom. He doesn't come down and ask you, hey, what do you think I should do in this situation? Right? All outside opinions, suggestions, advices mean nothing to God. He does what he wants, when he wants, how he wants, and he does not take into consideration anyone else's idea. Now, I realize that This entire portion can be a little triggering for some of you that are listening. I know I'm a little triggered by that plain statement. But I want you to know it's not that God is rude. (laughs) It's that you simply are not qualified. You ever tried to apply for a job that you were unqualified for and got rejected? It didn't hurt as much because you knew you weren't qualified for the position. It's not that God is rude. It's that you simply are not qualified. You see, the qualifications for sovereignty is this. Maybe if you want the sovereignty job, like you're getting dressed and you know I want that sovereignty job. Let me tell you what the qualifications are. So write this down and if you have this qualification, then you can be sovereign. Here it is. You must have no beginning and no end. So if you're not infinitely wise, infinitely loving and infinitely good, you really don't have anything to contribute to God's will. In other words, we can't make God's plans any better or greater than they already are. In fact, if we do get our hands on God's plans, we'll only make them worse. Now, some of you might be asking the question, well, then why pray? (laughs) <laughs> why why should we even ask the Lord for anything if it's just gonna happen? We can't change anything. God is saying what He's gonna do, He's in charge. I just gotta sit here and be quiet. We pray because the scripture tells us to pray. God says, come to me and pray. And the scripture says, pray. And he says, pray the will of God. See, God in his providence has desired and designed this reality for us to co-labor with him in prayer in that God has determined that his will flows through his people. And so we pray his will. We walk out his will. We demonstrate his will. You see, we pray thy kingdom come, thy will be done. And there are times and moments, even in the life of Jesus at the Garden of Gethsemane, where he said, look, take this cup away from me. But nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. You see, when we pray, God doesn't just change circumstances. He changes us. And so the practice of prayer is partnering with the will of God, but allowing the will of God to conform and shape us into the image of Jesus. So I want to encourage you, just because God is in control doesn't mean you shouldn't stop praying for that miracle. Number five. Verse 35 tells us God's sovereignty is unstoppable. I love how Nebuchadnezzar put it. He says this, God can do whatever he wants. He says, none can stay his hand. None can stay his hand. None can stay his hand. Nothing or no one can stop any plan, any purpose, any action, intention, or design of God. The implications of this is mind blowing. It's wild. Do you realize what this means? It means that God is even sovereign over Satan, that God is even sovereign over demons, that God is even sovereign over hell, that God is even sovereign over sin. This is going to be a wild conversation in Zoom Connects this week. God is sovereign over Satan. Right. Satan is not, you know, I think a lot of times we think that, like, you know, it's kind of evenly matched. Right. And like God is going to kind of edge it out, eke out the win in the end. I want you to know it's nothing like that. Satan is God's lackey. He's on God's leash for God's glory. There's no competition. God is even sovereign over demons. Jesus doesn't cast, doesn't just cast out demons, but he tells them where to go. Y'all can go into pigs. God is sovereign over hell and God is sovereign over sin. But I want you to understand this. God doesn't author sin, nor is he responsible for sin. But God is sovereign over sin, using it to bring about his loving purposes in his people. I love that great story of Joseph and his brothers. In Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, Joseph says this. As for you, you meant evil against me but God meant it for good. God is sovereign even over the evils in your life for his glory and for your good. Number six, finally, in verse 37, God is sovereign, and here it is, and this is probably the most crucial point of this whole message. Everything rises and falls under this foundational point. God is sovereign, are you ready? And everything he does is right. Wow. God never wrongs anyone. Pastor John Piper tells us God's ultimate aim is that he would be glorified for his mercy and grace toward unbelieving sinners. I'm gonna say that again. God's ultimate aim is that he would be glorified, that he would be magnified, but he would be glorified for his mercy and grace toward undeserving rebels like you and me. You see, in his sovereignty, God plans salvation for sinners from Genesis to Revelation to here in Daniel. It is all for his glory so that the nations would demonstrate their praise for his mercy and grace. This is called the redemptive history of God. His sovereignty is his plan to save sinners and built in this plan to save rebels is the accomplishment of that salvation through the death of His Son, Jesus Christ. In God's goodness, in God's greatness, in God's total control, He is determined to save rebellious rebels like you and me through the death of His Son, Jesus. So that in the end, those who would humble themselves repent of their sins and put their trust in Jesus Christ as Lord would be saved. And so that the nations would glorify him for his mercy and his grace. I want to finish here as King Nebuchadnezzar Nebuchadnezzar comes to the end of his life as he is getting ready to exit the world stage. In fact, I want you to know we're never going to see Nebuchadnezzar again in the book of Daniel. Right here in chapter four, Nebuchadnezzar is going to exit. But I want you to see this as King Nebuchadnezzar gets ready to exit the world stage and exit our story. After a lifetime of denying God's sovereignty and robbing God's glory, if you think back to chapter one, Nebuchadnezzar, he sieged God's city. He took God's people into captivity. In chapter two, he built up statues and images in chapter three of himself. And then he caused the entire world to bow down. What hubris, what arrogant, what ego. And he told the people of God, if they don't worship him, that he will burn them in a furnace. The audacity that he has the ability to waste And if he's feeling bad one day because of a dream, he could threaten to kill people at any cost. This King Nebuchadnezzar, before he exits the world stage and he leaves our story, makes one final statement in verse 37. After he is humiliated, he says, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven. For all his works are right, and his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Man, before we finish, take that in. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. The most powerfulest man in the world recognized the sovereignty and glory of God and gave him all honor and glory. This is the blessing of humiliation. and This is the way.
0: Thank you for joining us for this week's Inspired Churches podcast. Don't forget to share or subscribe to join us every Sunday. You can keep up with Inspired Churches through Instagram at Inspired Churches or on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Inspired Churches. To support the ministry, you can click on the link in the description or visit us at InspiredChurches.com for more information.